My name is Caleb Borchers, and uh, I live in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, we have just planted a church, the official title of which is The Feast, A Church of Christ, which is very long, so we just call it The Feast Church. Uh, we're about three years old, and uh, I am excited to be with you guys today. Uh, I had this experience recently. Uh, I was teaching a Bible study, a small group in our church, and... In the small group, I made a reference to something that Tom Hanks said in A League of Their Own. Right? And I thought, oh, that's a pretty broad reference. It should be good. And so I make this reference and I start looking around the room. And I'm getting a lot of blank stares. I was like, guys, Tom Hanks, League of Their Own. We all saw it when we were kids, right? At this point, I realized, quite literally, I was the oldest man in the room. I was... As th at 34, I was the oldest guy, and then one of the women next to me said, honestly, I wasn't born when that movie came out, so no, I've not seen it. And that's kind of our experience where we are. Um, I know that this is very different than maybe what some of you have experienced. I hear people complain about the opposite. Um, we are a relatively small church, but we are a church of almost exclusively millennials. It is not often for me to be the second or third oldest guy in the room. Um, we've been thankful that God's added some older families recently to give us some kind of experience, right? Somebody who knows something uh, of life beyond what I have experienced. But we're just, we're a small church, but we're a young church. And so that's what, when I have opportunities like this to speak to people, I like to talk about because I hear often a little bit the opposite of the experience. Uh, sometimes I talk to friends who are ministers and work in churches, and they say, we have, less, we have 200 members in our church, but we have less millennials than you do, because it's just this big gap that is sitting into their church. And frankly, um, statistic, uh, the statistical studies suggest that that's a very common experience, that lots of people are kind of dealing with that problem. And so it is my hope today to just share with you guys um, some of the experiences that we have in that um, so that we can uh, just not shed light on the best way to do this, just the way that we have done it and the things that we've picked up on. Uh, when often when we're raising money for our church plant, we will call ourselves the R&D department for the church, that at the very least we are in a context where we get to try stuff and we get to see what works and what doesn't work. And uh, it's a really, um, it's a deep part of what we try to do as a church. Before I jump in, I want to do some preliminary stuff, a few thoughts for you before we start uh, the main content. Uh, one of those is we are going to ask, I'm going to allow for questions at the end. That sounded very pretentious, allow for questions. We're going to have some questions at the end. So if you along the line are thinking, oh, I wonder about this, write it down, get, use it, um, feel free to share it with us. Uh, this is a part of, as I'll talk about, this is kind of the core character of our church. I do a Q&A at the end of every sermon I preach. So um, I'm pretty used to that, and I enjoy it. So, um, Also, you will find I will talk about some statistics, and I will talk about some personal experience. Uh, I will try to synthesize those well. I think it really annoys us when we talk to somebody who's clearly read a lot of Gallup polls, but never talk to a real person. Mm -hmm. And we're also annoyed when people say, oh, I have two friends that are this way, so that must be the way the world is, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to try to synthesize those things so that they're statistically relevant data along with our experience so that I'm hopefully hitting on a real thing that happens in your world and your communities. 
Um, also, just to be clear about what I plan to do today, I really want to talk about culture and values and programming and things like that. Um, you can have a great session on theology and doctrine and how it affects millennials, but that is not really where I want to go. And the reason I don't want to go there, I'll explain a little more later, but I do want it to be as broadly applicable as possible. Um, up front, I feel like it's fair to mention that there are a variety of issues that millennials care about that are going to have a major impact on this conversation. And I'm aware of it. It's just not what we're going to do today. Um, I think of issues like women's role in the church, uh, acceptance of LGBTQ people, uh, the environmental crisis, how the state and the church respond. All those kinds of issues are things that honestly some millennials will use as a yes-no litmus test for your church. They will say, what's your position on this? And if you answer that question wrong, they will have no interest in checking you out any further. Um, that's a reality that we live in. And there's a lot of good conversations that can be had about those things. But my hope today is not to relitigate those things with you, because I'm sure you have plenty of those conversations at your church at home uh, as far as how we handle those different um, subjects. So that is not what we plan to do. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of things that we do to help make uh, our church as welcoming as possible to millennials and how we've interacted with stuff. So, um, All right. The very first thing I want to talk about is I we have found, I have no fancy structure here. This is going to be a list of things that we have we're worked through. Uh, one of the most important things that we have found with working with millennials um, is that you need to provide opportunities for ownership. Now, I'm going to hypothesize here for a moment about, uh, about why millennials are the way they are. I can't prove this, but I have some instinct that this is right. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in Michigan, um, there was a kind of blueprint that my parents and grandparents and such gave me for what life looks like. You do well in school, you go to college, you get yourself a degree, you get hired by a good company, and then you kind of work through your ranks, right? I was, um, I had two grandfathers, like most of us do, um, and one of them worked for General Electric and one of them worked for General Motors. Both of them lifelong employees. Very, um, yesterday when I picked up my rental car, they said, did you want the Nissan or the Chevrolet? And instantly I said, the Chevrolet, because... Grandpa was a GM guy, and so that's the kind of cars that we bought. And that kind of story, that kind of uh, myth, that kind of um, architecture for life, we were taught. And for our grandparents, they lived in that world, and they were loyal to a company, a company took care of them. For our parents, at least my parents, my dad worked in the car industry 15 or so years, saw it getting unstable, and then went something better, right? Millennials' experience is they went and they got those degrees that mom and dad said they needed. They went to a university that charged them lots of money and gave them tons of student debt. And then they left to go get a job and they were thrown out into the middle of the Great Recession. And nobody was hiring. And now all of a sudden, the plan that mom and dad gave me has me stuck in debt from a university that seems to not care about tuition prices. Not offending Pepperdine, but just saying that this is an issue we've got, right? And going to a corporate environment that doesn't care about me, that's, you know, offering me a 15-hour-a-job week, 15 a week, hours a week job, right? And so there's just these feelings of organizations have let me down. 
And so this is where we get, and this is backed up in a lot of the research, um, millennials tend to be very anti-institutional because they just don't trust institutions because those institutions have not done particularly well for them. Kind of put some stats on this. Uh, when you adjust for inflation, millennials make 20% less than their parents did when entering the workforce. At the same time, their parents in 1989 averaged about $2,000 in student debt. That's about $4,000 in today's money. <coughs> Average college student today leaves with $37,000 in student debt. And you can see where that would maybe cause a little friction or concern. Um, and so it leads to this distrust of, free, uh, of institutions. It leads to people that think of themselves a little more as free agents, right? Uh, dad, you know, grandpa was a GM man, but a millennial is going to have six different jobs before they turn 30. Uh, that's not the actual stat. I just threw it off my top of my head, but it's something like that, right? There's constantly in and out of professions, new, new jobs, new places of work. And some of that's on the millennial side. Some of it's on the employer side. Um, it also leads to a greater amount of entrepreneurship. Uh, several years ago, I saw a study that showed that 25% of millennials at that point, and that's before the economy picked up, said 25% of millennials had created their own job. If you had 100 in a room, 25 of them started their own business or somehow made their own job. And if you talk to the uh, top 10% richest millennials today, 75% of them say their long-term future will be starting their own business. Because they're naturally entrepreneurial because that's what they were exposed to, right? They got done with college and there was no job to be had. And so they said, well, I'm just going to have to make my own. Um, why do we talk about that things with church? It's because our church culture is affected by those attitudes. Uh, tell me if this sounds familiar to maybe the way you grew up. Uh, the church I was at when I was a kid had a very clear order by which you became influential in the church. Uh, usually it started with you were a young college student, and a volunteer. You'd show up a lot. You'd pitch in. Maybe you got married. You'd do your volunteer work. Then when you had that first child, you'd probably become a deacon, right? And the deacons were effectively junior elders, right? We got our deacons so that we could promote them up to eldership at some point. And then usually once those kids got old enough to be baptized, which for some of us was like eight, right? We had those kids officially as believers. We could stamp them as elders and put them in a position. And about that point, when you hit 40, somebody starts caring about your opinion. Before then, it was kind of like, do the job you're asked to do and trust the elders to lead the church. Um, maybe if you went to a more progressive church, you kind of moved past that in the last 20 or 30 years, but you liked to committee stuff to death, right? If we want to get you involved with the church, you can join the, you know, whatever committee, and you can be one of 15 people that sits around and debates issues and votes on stuff. I don't believe with, with millennials, I just don't think that simply will work. Um, millennials in their work environment have come into a place where if they want to do something, they just go do it. And if there's somebody who is standing in their way at work from doing a project they want to do, let's go start their own business. That's what everybody else is doing anyways, right? And for better or for worse, whatever it says about sort of discipleship and whatever it says about submission to authority or whatever... Your millennials, when they see the opportunity to start their own thing, will do it. 
And so if your church does not have pathways for them to have impact and a voice in what's going on, they will go plant their own where they will be given a voice and they will have a way to impact. Uh, I think the challenge for us is to find ways to allow that to happen. Um, in the corporate world, they say that one of the problems they have is that older folks look at um, the job, uh, look at the way you go up in career, and seniority is really matter, really matters, right? You put in your time to get the promotion. Millennials in the business sphere are already saying competency is way more important than experience. If I'm better at my job than a guy who's been here for 10 years, I should get the promotion and he shouldn't because I'm better at my job than he is. They are thinking the same thing in your church. Um, it sounds bad, but if you've had a youth, you've had a children's minister who's done kids' class the same way for twenty years, and they come in, they go, "Well, I have some new ideas, and I think they're really effective, and the kids are responding well." If you go, "Well, you know, he's been here a long time. Just kind of wait your turn, and we'll eventually get to trying some new things," they likely are just going to leave and go do new things somewhere else. Um, I'm not. I don't want to put any values on that that's good or bad. I think there are things about it that's bad. But I also think it's a reality that we live in. Um, some guys named Griffin, Mulder, and Powell have written a book called Growing Young. It's a church about how to get your church younger. And the, way, the phrase they use for this is keychain leadership. That if you want to work well with modern young people, you have to find an excuse to give them a keychain with a key to the church building. Because that tells them you are trusted, you are valued, and you have a role here. Because they're just naturally entrepreneurs that naturally like to build things. So what do we do with this? Uh, one of the big questions for us is how tightly do you control your decision making? Who at your church has a voice in making decisions? How permeable is that decision making faculty? Now, I don't think it means that, you know, anybody who walks in gets to do whatever they want. That's not the point. But if somebody feels like they, if a millennial feels like they're going to hit a glass ceiling, they are going to likely go to a place where they feel like that's not, that doesn't exist, where they're not going to be slowed down. And this idea of like, well, we'll let them wait until they start to raise their kids and get a little older and get a little more established, they, they don't want to wait. So I think the question is, how do you create environments where they can have impact in, uh, where they can connect, where they can have some sort of build, ability to build. One of the best ways to do this is find something that they're passionate with, about that has some sort of parallel to what your church is doing, that it has some good synergies with where you're already headed, and let them start it as a new ministry. Say, you know what? You are right. Our church should be better about helping the poor, and you really have this desire to do benevolence work. So how about we're going to give you... A, a couple hundred bucks in budget, and we're going to put the announcements in the bulletin. And if you want to start this project, go for it. If they're, you know, if they're a horse in the stable just ready to take off, at least shoot them some way, right? Try to give them some opportunity to have some sort of ownership of what you're doing. For us as a church plant, this is very easy because we have to do everything and we were doing nothing, right? We went from non-existence to existence. So anytime somebody said, hey, I'd like to help with this... It's easy for us to go, awesome, there you go, it's your job. Because there's just, there's nobody else to do it. We're still young and small and ready to, to get moving and try new things. So that's easy. For some of our more established churches, it's going to, I think, take some humility to say that 
we're okay letting some things develop and grow that we're not totally in control of. Because there is, I think, a God-given gift of entrepreneurial ability in this generation that the church is either going to use to grow and expand or they will waste it. And the church and these kids will use it on something else. So I think we have to harness it and try to try to use those opportunities. Um, so that's the first thing. I think we have to create a environment of ownership. Uh, the second thing that is really important for me is uh, the idea of authenticity. So maybe you've had this experience. Uh, there is a new Transformers movie out, all right? And your nephew is really excited about this movie. Your nephew has zero taste. But nonetheless, your nephew is very excited. And so you're walking through Walmart and you see the, the $5 bin DVDs, right? And you know the kid's been going on about the movie. And you pick up the DVD and it's the movie. I thought it was in theaters right now, but I guess it's out. It's already $5. He'll be so happy. So you pick up the DVD, you buy it, you go home, you hand it to your nephew, and he goes, What's Transmorphers for? You go, that's the movie you want to see. No, no, I want to see Transformers for. Transmorphers is a cheap knockoff that someone created to sell $5 DVDs at Walmart. Right? There's been a bait and switch. You thought you were getting one thing, and you were getting something far inferior. This is the way that millennials often feel about your church. They went in looking for one thing, to be fair, maybe the thing you're advertising. And then they get home and they open it up and it's transmorphers. It's just a cheap knockoff of what they were hoping for. And we do it because we are so worried about drawing people in that we, frankly, can engage in dishonest marketing. Right? We tell them that our church is more appealing than it is because we just want them to show up. And I think it's really important that we be authentic um, to who we are. Talked a little bit about millennials and how they feel about institutions. Um, I saw this, this study that asked uh, millennials about institutions. And um, they, they split it into two categories. Do you trust these people a lot or a little? Is one. So if you trust them a little bit or a lot, that's in one category. On the other side, do you trust them some or not at all? Right? So it's kind of a probably 50% or better kind of dichotomy that they were doing, right? Here's how different institutions fared 55% of millennials were positive about the military, which I thought was very interesting. 51% uh, were positive about colleges. 31% were positive about organized labor. 29% were positive about banks. 27% about the justice system. 27% about Silicon Valley. 26% about mayors, 22% about the federal government, 21% about news organizations, 21% about governors, 20% about corporate America. So you can see most institutions of any size in our culture were sitting about 20%. Only one out of five millennials had much good to say about those institutions. Organized religion did fairly well. We were at 25%. So if you, you meet four millennials and you invite them to your church, three of them don't like your organization just because it's organized religion. And I think a lot of that um, 
there is some legitimate concerns about just what organizations do, right? For that list, we could all name off things. Are there things the federal government has done that makes you distrust them, right? Yes, I think no matter where you are on the, the spectrum, most of us can agree to that. Uh, these kids have grown up with uh, the Catholic Church molestation scan scandal, right, on the news. They have grown up with seeing Westboro Baptist on CNN. They have grown up with seeing all kinds of images of Christianity that are not positive. And so there's an institutional distrust. And that distrust even comes down to how <coughs> honest are churches. How real are they about what we do? Um, they see guys on TV who claim to be Christians who say one thing and then do something else. And it seems very hypocritical. And so the big thing for us, and this sounds really simple, but it's really important. Um, say what you mean. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, if you advertise that you're doing a benevolence event to try to serve the poor in your community, and what you're really doing is an evangelism event where you use benevolence as a carrot to get people in the door, that does not go over well. It's so fake. It just feels so inauthentic. You told me I was here for this one thing, and now here I am volunteering to help the poor, and I've got some guy here saying something that I don't even agree with, and like I'm with that. It just creates very odd feelings. Uh, you want honesty in your advertising. Um, this is part of the reason I don't want to go in to theology stuff. Okay, sometimes we do this, like, well, maybe... If we, nobody, maybe no one says this explicitly, but I think we think this. Maybe if we let women pass communion, we'll get some millennials more excited about our church. If your church is not a place where that's theologically tenable, or that's going to cause all kinds of conflict, or where people don't believe in that position, don't take a position just to hope it will make people happy with you. Um, the only thing worse than having a position on one of those issues that a millennial doesn't like is having a position they don't like, but then massaging the truth to where it sounds like you really are okay with it. With the hope of like, if we can just hide how we really feel about this and get them hooked, then they won't leave when they find out what we're really like. Um, I, I, this is not my notes. A, a quick caveat on that. Definitely be this way about LGBTQ issues. If your church is not a place that is welcoming to LGBTQ people, do not pretend like you are. That causes a lot of pain, and that will really, really frustrate and anger and push folks away. Um, I know what it's like to want to so carefully nuance your language on that, that it sounds as good as possible. But in the end, people want to know who you are and where you stand. Millennials do not want a public face that then looks different on the backside. Um... And so I think a way that we go through this, the way we work on this, the way we can connect well with millennials is to create environments in our churches that are open and honest. All right, now that's, oh, it seems like such a cliche phrase now, right? Open and honest. But we believe at the feast that transparency is huge. Um, our budget is always available at any time for anybody who wants to see it. If you guys would like to know what we spent on communion bread this year, I'm happy to pull it up for you. Okay, we just, it's not, it's not a secret thing. We know that many millennials do not trust the church and money. 
they're not old enough to remember Tammy Faye Baker, but yet somehow it's still <laughs> bouncing around in the back of their heads, right? Um, there's just this thought of, oh yeah, church, that's where they ask for money and then they use it for bad stuff. Uh, we find that most of the millennials that we've done fundraising with said, I love giving to church planning because I'm tired of all the stupid stuff our elders give money to. That feel, they, okay, we feel weird about that. That makes me feel really uncomfortable when someone says it. And I'm always like, no, listen, you need to respect your, the elders at your church. You need to kind of submit to their leadership. And they're like, whatever, I'm not paying for one more gym, right? You know, like <laughs> there's a strong feeling that they want to know where the dollars go. So for us, you can always see the budget. For our community, if you are a regular member of our church, you can be on the budget committee. Now, what we've discovered with that is most people go, oh, two-hour meeting, lots of numbers? No thanks, that's all right, I trust you guys. It's not like many people have taken us up on that offer. But, you know, when it comes to the money, people have got to know where it goes, where it happens. I don't know why we get so clammed up about this. Um, you know, ministers, I think we're bad about this. I really don't want the church to know how much money I make. That makes me feel really uncomfortable. Well, they're the ones giving the money for your salary, you know, like... I mean, you can try to hide that, and you, I mean, you can. You, sometimes we throw it in certain budget categories so that people can't really see it. But anytime it looks like you're trying to keep people from knowing what's really going on, it just looks duplicitous. It looks like another organization that's not telling them the truth. Um, and so we believe greatly in that kind of transparency. Uh, we believe and giving regular feedback opportunities. Um, you know. Whether it's, uh, we have a budget uh, process we go through every year, we have an annual meeting and a congregational meeting, and we do, uh, I do an annual report to say kind of where our church is at. That report is given to every member, and if they want to read it, they may. And if they come to the meeting and they have questions about it, I'm willing to answer those questions because there's accountability to the community because we are not trying to hide anything. Um, and I think a lot of churches, we do that, and then down the road we're shocked that people are, getting away with stuff behind that sort of curtain of secrecy that we've created, and I'm not always sure why we've done that. The third thing I want to talk about, it's kind of the hardest one to deal with, I think. Um, it's important that we remember that millennials are demographically different than other generations before them. Uh, let me throw out a few numbers here. Uh, baby boomers were 72% white. Millennials are 56% white. It's a 16% drop. There's good reason to think my kids will live as a plurality, but not as a majority, um, as, as white Americans. Um, as of 2014, and I'm sure this number has changed greatly in the last four years, as of 2014, only 60% uh, of millennials had no children, and 59% were single and unmarried. Uh, the average median age for women marrying now, I believe, is 27, and it is very common for people to wait till their 30s to get married and have kids. Um, in Rhode Island, we always feel like the East Coast does these things faster. West Coast is this way, too. We, we speed up the trends. Uh, every kid that is friends with my children has parents who are 10 years older than I am because they waited till later in life to do different things. Um, they're also an incredibly liberal generation. Millennials tend to not want to describe themselves as Democrats, but they vote incredibly liberally, and they hold liberal political positions and it's not just youth, right? There's kind of the idea that youth are kind of idealistic and then they kind of change as they get older. Uh, if you compare their numbers to Gen Xers and baby boomers and the generation before at this age in life, 
millennials are still far ahead of them and how liberal they are politically. Um, so you put all these things together, and the question is, what kind of people does your church naturally serve well? What, how do you program your church? How do you, what kind of language do you use at your church? What is your church designed to connect with and bring in? My guess, just from personal experience, is it's likely designed well to connect with white married couples with children who lean up conservative on the political social scale, right? Because that's just kind of who we are. In Church of the Christ, that's generally who we've been. I did a presentation, I remember years ago, at a church. Uh, it was more about urban ministry. Uh, but I talked about this thing, how family-focused we were. And as I drove into the church building, it was the, I don't name them because I can't remember who it was, and protect them, so-and-so Church of Christ, where the whole family is welcome, Right? which immediately said, bring in your kids. And if you are dealing with a 28-year-old millennial, they probably don't have kids. And when they walk in the door and they go, there's a youth ministry here, there's a children's ministry here, lots of baby showers. But man, there doesn't seem to be anything for somebody who's a young married or somebody who's single. Right? Singles ministry is often this black hole. Right? We, we try really hard, but it's a black hole we often have. We kind of, you know, come back when you've had a baby is kind of the way that it ends up being communicated to people. And this is not, I mean, this is really important because the generations are shifting. If you were a family-focused church in 1982, there was a much larger percent of the population and a much younger percentage of the population who that appealed to. But we cannot continue to have a this is a great place to raise your kids sort of PR program and then be shocked that nobody under 35 is coming to our church because none of them have children. They're, they're, you know, they're waiting to have kids until they're 33 years old. And so it's, this isn't about good or bad and it's not to pick on anybody for what they've done. I think we are still doing things that were effective a long time ago. But when you look at how you program your church, what do we have that is focused for people who are single, uh, people who are young professionals, people who are married and don't have kids? What do we provide? How do we speak to them and say, you are welcome? Um, again, going on the just simply on the demographics. If you are a church where um, white people feel really comfortable, but it is not as comfortable for African American or Asian American or other ethnicity people, then you are getting an increasingly small percentage of the population that you're going to be able to reach, right? Because this generation is just different. One of the biggest things is the Hispanic percentage of the population is growing really quickly. And they are actually the most religious of those sections of the population, right? right. And so I saw a great study the other day. People talk about evangelicals. And they assume that they're talking about white guys from Alabama, right, on the news. But increasingly, they're talking about Hispanic families that live in central Los Angeles, right? And so just how we position our church, where we focus it. Uh, at the feast, we do some of these things better than others. We are not nearly as ethnically diverse as I want to be. And that's a really hard chicken and egg kind of thing sometimes for us, right? Uh, it's very hard for us to figure out how to better connect with communities we're not already connected well with. Um, 
On the political side, this is something that you probably can do more about. Um, what hidden political messages get spoken, whether it's from the pulpit or from the bulletin or from your prayer requests, right? What are all the little subtle ways that you say liberal people aren't welcome here? Uh, the way I said this back in an earlier age is if your church uh, was negative about people who voted for Obama, then you were being negative about two out of three millennials. 66% voted for him in the first election. And we do talk about that stuff in a way that makes people subtly get this idea of you're not welcome here. And we just have to recognize if we do that, again, we're just we're aiming for a small percentage of this generation. Um, the other thing, though, I think is the biggest thing is this marital status and kid status thing. What is your language? If you talk about family, how do you talk about it? Um, how do you deal with non-nuclear families? What are you doing with single parents? What are you providing for, you know, grandpas and grandmas that are raising their kids? There's just, there's all kinds of ways which we subtly message to people that we're a place for nuclear families of mom and dad and 2.6 kids, right? And if we're doing that, maybe we'll connect with the millennials 10 years from now. But right now, most of them don't have kids and they're not married. And so we have to think about how that messaging Works And that, that comes down to our programming, right? How much of your church programming is family-centered events? Do you do anything that's just fun for the single people? Uh, it's not, this is hardly the best advice in the world. We do karaoke night from time to time. We just go out and do karaoke. And all of our parents with kids stay home and put their kids to bed and don't get to go, right? But that's okay. Because it communicates, this is something I would do if I was still single. And that's important. It says to our people in a church like that, there's a space for you, and we want to do some kind of programming that, that meets your needs. All right. Uh, the fourth thing I want to talk about, and this is really important to me, this is kind of a very core thing for our church, um, is the idea of encouraging conversation. You want to encourage an environment of questions and conversation back and forth. Um, you have to remember that millennials have grown up in a world where they can talk to somebody at any time ever. Someone literally just tried to talk to me right now, right? I'm in the middle of speaking, and I'm getting communication from someone. Millennials are used to going out to dinner, taking a picture of their dinner, posting on Instagram, and their friends interacting with them about what they think about their dinner, right? Now, this seems narcissistic and stupid and ridiculous, but it shows you that they are a people of connectivity, you can stay in touch with friends from high school that you wouldn't talk to otherwise. I have a friend I haven't talked to in probably 20 years, but I know what kind of movies her son likes and, you know, how he felt about Infinity War last week, right? Because I can still talk to people um, that, that are separated. I remember when I was a kid, we went to uh, Disney World, and we went to Epcot, and we got on the spaceship Earthride, right? That's the big golf ball at uh, the Epcot Park. And you go up into it, and it's the story of the history of communication. So they show you, you know, hieroglyphics and the Egyptians, and they show you Romans pounding stuff out on tablets, and they show you Gutenberg inventing the printing press. And then at the end, there's a, here's what might come in the future. And I remember from being a kid, very clearly, there's a scene with a little boy in the United States talking to a little girl from China, and they're doing a, a video conference call just talking about what they did at school that day. 
And I remember as a sixth or seventh grader going, that'll never happen. That's ridiculous. How in the world could you have a video call? It's like something out of a you know, science fiction movie. Yeah, we have Skype and FaceTime right now. Like, I could call somebody in New Zealand right now, no problem, and talk to them and look them in the face and, and, and converse with them. It's a just connected generation, even an overly connected generation, really, if you want to think about it. And that changes the need for interactivity, right? If I can have a conversation with somebody who lives on the other side of the planet, why don't I ever have a conversation with anybody from church? Um, connected with this is that millennials are content creators. All right? If you like the nerdy side, we're going to go real nerdy for a second, and then I'll try to be more practical. Uh, in modernism, we talked about this idea that authors created meaning when they wrote texts. Right? We still do this a lot in church. What did Paul mean when he wrote this letter? Then in post-modernity, there was this new thing that we talked about as reader response. It doesn't matter what the author meant. What matters is what the reader understands when they read the text, right? We have gone to a next step beyond that, where the meaning does not lie in the author or the reader. The meaning is literally written and created by the one consuming. <clears throat> All right, that we consume and create simultaneously. So what does that mean? I vote somebody off the island, and that's what happens on the show. I send my tweet in to CNN, and it's scrolling across the bottom of the screen. The TV show that I am watching, I am literally creating as I watch it. Social media makes this even faster. Somebody's on Facebook Live, I can type them a question and they'll immediately respond to it on the video that I'm watching at this moment. Uh, the other place I saw this so clearly, Apple for a while was doing iPhone ads with these beautiful videos of sunsets and people surfing and nature and hang gliding and all this stuff. Where did they get the video content? Any guesses? From people. Yeah. From users who bought the iPhone, right? Yeah. They are telling you, buy this phone so you can take beautiful, beautiful, beautiful video, which you'll then email to us that we'll use to sell you the next generation of phone. You are creating the content that you are imbibing. If this is the case, there has to be feedback loops in our church. The idea of showing up to a church where the worship minister has planned out all the songs and there's a guy who prays and then the preacher talks at them for 25 minutes and then we say amen and then they're told to go home never allows one moment of interaction. It never allows them to help create what's going on. And for millennials, they're like, why am I not invited to this party? CNN cares about what I think about. Why don't you, right? So we've tried to... Um, we have tried to put this into our church in a couple of ways. One of them I was talking about earlier, we do a Q&A at the end of every sermon that we do. Every time I finish a sermon, I say, does anyone have anything they'd like to ask about? And it is an opportunity for them to interact with me, but also to help author the sermon to some degree, right? I've seen some other folks that have done really great stuff as far as creating sermon writing committees, where the preacher comes in on Tuesday night and he says, here's some content I have. Here's a couple stories. Here's the scripture. This is where I'm going exegetically. What do you think? And then a committee of seven or eight people goes, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And he goes, that's a great story. So he takes the story, 
puts it into the sermon, right? You know, that question is a great question. And so now in the final product, he uh, talks about that, that particular subject. And what has happened, the community has helped co-author the sermon. And there's a feedback loop, right? Uh, I think it's really important for us. Now, we can do it easily. We're small enough. It's like, hey, raise your hand. If somebody raises their hand, we have to get the question. Uh, for some of you guys, this is going to mean working with technology, whether it's texting questions in and some guy on the computer in the back is searching through them, you know, make sure that if your 16-year-olds ask, why is my butt stinky? That doesn't make it onto the screen, right? You know, like there's, you're going to need some kind of like filtering system. But still, I think there's ways to do it. So that you're saying, this is not a world where I speak at you. And I think this is important because it connects to our other things we've already talked about. Um, conversation allows for ownership. It allows for people to say, I helped create our, our experience in worship. I had some role in it. I had some ownership in it. Uh, it's important because it cuts away from any inauthent inauthenticity or any edifice. Right? Uh, as a preacher, I'm very aware of this. I cannot make a point that's not real well substantiated and hope to just glide over it and nobody will notice. Because if I do, I'm going to get a question at the end of the sermon. You know, I noticed you skipped verse 14. Is there a reason why you did that? Yes, yes, there is a reason why I skipped that verse, right? It, it naturally um, is sort of a detector that stops you from um, being able to just try to get one over on somebody. Um, and finally, it goes back to our question of the demographic thing, it, it necessarily is democratic and necessarily is open. It necessarily says anybody who is in this room has a right and a space to ask something. And the easiest way, if you want a community that's not well represented at your church to have a voice in your church, saying, hey, does anybody have a question? Allowing somebody to go, you know, where I live and in my neighborhood, that doesn't make sense. It suddenly makes your church far more open and diverse than it was before. Because it gives a different kind of personal voice to speak. Um, all of this builds trust, right? Um, how do we feel when uh, a politician or a celebrity or an athlete maybe gets in trouble and they do the I'm sorry press conference, right? I am <laughs> greatly sorry for what I've done and if it's caused any offense for anyone and I just ask for your forgiveness as I try to work through that, right? And then when they go, thank you, there'll be no questions. How do you feel about that? Immediately. What a bunch of baloney. He won't even stand up and take a few questions. Right? We do not like people that are like, I'm going to speak my piece, but then no more. If you had a spouse that said, listen, there's something that bothers, that's bothering me. I'm going to tell you what it is. And when I'm done, we're not talking about it anymore. <laughs> right? We're not signing up for that conversation. But we do that at church. The preacher's going to get up for 25 minutes and tell you what the right answers are. When you're done, he's going to sit down, you're going to sing a song, and then you're going to have to confront him after church if you want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that there's, there's ways that these things can help us uh, open <coughs> some things up. The last thing I wanted to hit is really practical. How do we work with millennials? Um, some of you at your workplaces or in your churches are right now asking, you're like, these guys are a pain in the neck. How am I supposed to handle this? You know, I want to be helpful, but every time I talk to them, they seem to be all up in a bunch about something. I'm like, what's the problem? Um, and I'm, I'm not the best at this. I should say I, I am a millennial, um, barely. 
A lot of, uh, I think it's Barna Group has now made the cutoff January 1st, 1984. So when they start. My birthday is January 4th, 1984. So I'm four days a millennial. Um, I, I identify that way. When I see research about millennials and Xers, I feel far more like a millennial than I do an Xer. But I, I am at the older end, right? I'm, I'm married with four children. I am very atypical. And there's some ways where the younger ones just still bug me. Um, but I think there's some good stuff that, particularly the corporate world's helping us with, on how multi-generational workplaces work and how we can apply that um, to our churches. One of the things, the Bar- I just mentioned the Barna Group, they have found a big thing for millennials is they want to have fellow, journey, uh, fellow journeyers or people who journey with them more than they want bosses or managers. They want somebody that says, let's walk on this road uh, together. They don't respond as well to authority as maybe earlier generations did. Here is the super weird dichotomy, and I've seen this enough places and seen it in real life to know this is true. Millennials have high self-esteem and high anxiety. That means they don't want you to tell them that they don't know what they're doing, but they're telling themselves all the time that they don't know what they're doing. Right? This is a very weird thing to work with. With like, no, I can handle it. In the back of their head, they're going, oh man, I can't handle this, right? <laughs> There's like this outward edifice of, and, and it's, and it, 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 is it a low self, I mean, it's not a low self, it's, it's, it's weird. Frankly, I think it's a paradoxical thing that should not coexist in a brain. <laughs> but it's like, I'm the best thing in the world and I have no confidence that I'm capable of doing anything like that. And that exists in millennial brains. It's something about the society that we have, uh, kind of raise these guys in, uh, raise us guys in. And so what corporate people have found is millennials like lots of micro-feedback. Okay, if you are working on a ministry thing at church with a millennial, give them lots of micro-feedback. Um, they've done studies with people in the workplace. Millennials want either weekly or monthly meetings with their superior. Many boomers would like every six months, right? <laughs> Don't get in my way. Don't bother me. I can do my job. I don't need your help. And millennials are like, hey, can I get a little feedback on how this is going? Uh, this is how it looks in our church, and I will tell you it drives me insane. I, my belief is do it for me or let me do it, okay? If you want to take a task and run with it, awesome. And if you want me to do it by myself, fine, get out of my way. I'll do it. But this thing, and it happens all the time, they go, I really want to help run this event. Well, that's awesome. Here you go. I trust you. Go get them. Two days later, I get a text. Hey, uh, I think I picked out the color for the font on the poster. Does this look good? Sure. Another day later. What size paper? Do you want to go with, like, the thicker paper or the lighter paper? I don't care. Just go do it. Right? This drives me nuts. But I see it over and over again. They want to have ownership, but then they want to have a sense that they're doing it right. And that's just a weird thing, but I think it's going to be really important for our churches to do well. To give them the ownership and then to have the patience to then reaffirm when they're doing it and they're doing doing it well. Um, That's really the biggest thing that I've seen out of a lot of this stuff. Uh, As leaders in churches, when we work with millennials, we have to think of ourselves as coaches and mentors. We have to say, hey, let me coach you on how to do this. Not here's what to do, but here's the way to think about what you're doing. Um, I recently got a text uh, where somebody had a a, a deal at work where they didn't kind of know like the Christian way to go about it. 
And I said, you know what? Here's two or three texts where I think somebody in the Bible had a situation like yours that I think would be helpful for you. And I let her read them and decide for herself what they meant. Because she doesn't need for me to sit there and tell her, you know what? What you need to do is this and this and this because the Bible says this and that's set and let's go. Uh, it's not it's not what she wants, and it's not what her brain nat, you know like connects with. She wants me to walk with her and alongside of her, but then to give her the opportunity to do it herself. Um, we can not overlook the fact that helicopter helicopter parenting came into existence when these people were kids, right? And they were used to mom and dad constantly being over them, and you know you gotta be minus, and they go to the teacher and they fuss at the teacher. <laughs> And as a millennial, you guys are always like, well, you guys all got trophies for playing soccer. Mm -hmm. Guess what? I didn't buy the trophy, okay? That was some parent in the group that did it. And this is the effect. I mean, we'll just put on the other generation. This is the the effect of the way baby boomers parented us is that we do kind of like that more frequent feedback and we do like to feel affirmed and to have the sense that we're doing well. And so being able to be a coach that supports and brings them through. And it means doing things that don't totally make sense. You own this project, and I'm willing to give you constant feedback on it. That, for my brain, does not work. But it's something I think we've got to do. All right. Um, just to recap the things we talked about, and then I will take some questions. Uh, things that we feel like we found has work. Find places where millennials can own, uh, can have ownership, and can help create what the church is doing. Second of all, be transparent and honest about what your organization is like and what you do. Uh, Third of all, program and message that millennial demographics demographics have a place in your church. Uh, The fourth one, create space and tolerance for questions. And the fifth one is to lead uh, with a mentoring role. One thing I did uh, miss along the way, um, as far as be transparent and honest about the organization... We always over-explain what we're doing. If we invite somebody to, um, we do something called theology chats, right? Which is um, open conversations about things that make faith difficult. We always say this is a time that is open to all sorts of people to come and discuss something that makes faith difficult. During our time, we may read from the Bible and talk about why Christians believe what they do. Now, you would think you don't have to say that. But I don't want anybody walking in the door and going, whoa, this is a Bible thing? We're pulling out Bibles. What's going on, right? Like, if there is anything that could feel weird. When we do um, Parents' Nights Out and we watch kids, we're very explicit. There will be no theological material discussed with your child while you're not here. Right? Because we just always want to be very explicit about what it does or doesn't look like. On the flip side, we do a VBS. This is a program for children, and we will talk about a Bible story and why we think it's important for our lives. Because we never want to make it, let anyone feel misled. That's something I was supposed to say a half hour ago. All right. <laughs> questions. Anybody have any questions they'd like to ask? Yes. Um, yesterday I heard uh, on the news a study, and of course I can't quote it, my battery's dead, so I couldn't pull it up. But that uh, the millennials who are just getting out of college in their 20s, so this would be the younger end of the millennials, are the loneliest group of people, even lonelier than elderly? Yeah, I can. So I think there's a real opportunity to reach into those people. Yeah, I, I can believe that. Just for the recording, there was a study that mentioned that um, millennials are lonelier than even um, senior citizens are, as far as That's, not having that was opportunity. A 
Yeah, I mean, I can I can see where that is. That's like the the weird irony of social media, right? You're super connected, but you don't know anybody personally. Well, you're sizing each other up. Yes. On social media, which is can make you feel bad, depressed, because you're not as great as what they're doing on their social media. Well, and I think it helps explain when I talk about that high self-esteem, high anxiety. Social media creates that. Because if you don't come with yourself, you know, nobody wants to see like, hey guys, do you like me? On social media, it's always going to be like, look at me and how wonderful I am. And then as soon as you hit post, you're like, please get likes, please get likes, please. Right? Like yeah. that's what it does to your brain, I think. Yeah. So you talk about having a question and answer after your sermon. Yeah. What's the other things in your order of worship that you put together to appeal to the millennials? Uh, so what's our worship look like to appeal to the millennials? Um, the answer is we don't do a lot to appeal to millennials when it comes to worship. Um, I think there's good research that shows that particularly for non-church, unchurched people, what they really care about is good preaching. Um, our worship service is not the most exciting thing in the world. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world either, but um, yeah, so I we, we do some newer songs, we do some older songs. I think there's been good research that shows... Millennials kind of like old hymnody sometimes, but they also kind of like new. I mean, um, so here's what I would say. What we do is super authentic to who we are. So the Feast Church worship looks like the we have thought about what does the feast look like? Who are our people? What are our influences? What backgrounds do we come from? So, I mean, honestly, we're in a situation where acapella is not necessarily required. But we do a lot of acapella singing because we're a bunch of Church of Christ kids that planted a church. And we just say that's part of our heritage, it's part of who we are, and I think that authenticity is good. And so, um, so yeah, I think that's the biggest thing in it, is we do things that we're comfortable with and that we feel is good. And if it's something that, if there's a really cool new worship song that we're confident our team can't handle, we're not going to fuss with it because that's not who we are. And it will look really fake if we try to make it happen. I'd invite you to come to this class tomorrow. They'll be hitting that very explicit conversation of a church that's a good 20th century church doing things in 20th century ways. How do we kick it in to ways that make sense now to a, a different generation of people? We'll, we'll hit some very specific ways to go about that. So which class is this? Two o'clock tomorrow here. This very room. Yeah, this room. Now, I was going to ask and tied right in with hers. Um, you talked about a lot of young churches. We live in Florida. It's not young churches. There's hardly anybody under 60 in, our, in the churches uh, uh, in Florida, Churches of Christ. Um, and, but, what I want, but as you kept going, what I wondered about is, are millennials receptive? I mean, here you've got two groups that are lonely. You, here you've got a group that has lots of, of time, generally, the elderly, to spend on these very self-absorbed, you know, um, to attention-demanding millennials. Has anybody done anything? <laughs> Has anybody done anything to see if there's a way to make that work to benefit yeah. both? So I think this is totally just gut instinct kicking in. I think the question of how could we better connect, say, our senior citizen population and our, our millennials. Uh, you've got to find a natural place to meet, which I think is hard. I'm wondering, and this might be crazy, the YMCA comes to mind, right? I work out at the Y. I like it because everybody's as unfit as I am, right? So <laughs> never feel bad about it. But I always see kids in there and guys playing basketball, and then there's also some older folks in there that like to come in for their coffee. 
I think you want to find a place to organically meet. I doubt you'll be able to put any sort of sign outside. The morning will be like, hey, we've got old people that like to talk to you. And they'll go, hey, let's go do that, you know? Um, but if you can find good ways to make connections, you know, workplace, um, spaces like a Y that might be like well, spaces Even if frequent. you have them in your church, instead of it being the preacher and the staff's responsibility to be, have all of their time sucked up with this, have other people who are designated as available and who've gotten to understand better than most of us do the culture and, and what, what they're really looking for, which it sounds to me like it's a combination of a lot of attention and a lot of affirmation. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that most of us who survived parenting and grandparenting actually learned right. a good bit of how to do. Uh, just another resource. I'm oh, will they accept it? Is go my, my is my question. Will they? Do, I mean, are are we too far on the shelf and they're not receptive? I, I don't think it would be that way. I think there would be some real respect. Um, and my experience is that you know millennials aren't like negative and nasty about people who are older than them. I think there could be. I think one tool that I'll just suggest. I know Ed Gray from Harding Grad School or Harding School of Theology. Excuse me. Uh, he does a great marriage mentoring thing, and I know I'm talking about marriage, and I talked about how old we're married. But um, it's designed to help couples who have been married a long time sit down with newly married couples and have a mentoring relationship. And I think that would be a really possible, it's great, it's a series of 12 lunches that you do where you talk about your marriage and you talk about theirs, and I think that might be a, a toehold for somebody who may use in your church. Uh, Caleb, I'm curious... In, in at the feast, with working with a bunch of millennials, where on online it feels like every week there is a viral tragedy or headline or whatever. Yeah. How how do you guys navigate how often you address uh, those kind of things um, compared to older churches that might wait for a, a big thing and right. it's like it, you know it's it's more rare. So that that's real hard. Um, we I had this conversation with other ministers. When do I, in a sermon, talk about something that happened in the news? Um, it sounds really callous. My position has been, if I talked about everything that I know is bothering our people, in three years I would have had two sermons about something else. Because it's just constant. Now, what we've done, just a little trick, I don't know if this is good, often communion is that place for us. Communion is the place where we address the brokenness of the world and how Christ can help heal that. Um, so that's one of the things I've done. It also helps me with my sermons. You know, if there's a mass shooting on Friday, that can be very difficult for how I do a sermon on Sunday. And so communion has been one of the places we engage it. But it, it's important. The, the danger to me is the precedent you set, right? Because if you talk about if you talk about the Pulse nightclub shooting and you don't talk about the Charlottesville um, protests, then your community, I care about gay people, but I don't care about black people, Right? There's like little sneaky parts of that. And so um, that's why I'm a little, I'm more on the side of not addressing many of them to still not addressing it often just because I don't want to feel like I have things I care about and things I don't. But like I said, communion is that. Often we'll also do it like in a closing prayer. We'll have a special prayer about something going on. And that's usually something you can throw together last minute and get away with. You, you address the... Um Avoiding the explicit, implicit, you know, family environment, marriage, yeah. all that stuff. You didn't really say anything about terminology we use about millennials. And, uh, you know, 
we see it in social media. You know, the guy with the song, la da dee da da da. You know, there's these songs where millennials are the buddy under the joke. And, yeah. you know, do you have any wisdom on that that you would share with us about? Well, it, it's easy for us because we have so few older people that would share that kind of stuff that um, there's not poor millennial talk because we're all talking about ourselves. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. um, so that, you know, and, and I talked about the politics. It's really easy for my church to not say something that's offensively conservative because I don't think there's anybody in the room that feels that way, right? I mean, our church, if anything, it's the opposite way. Yeah. I'm not sure if... Republicans would feel real comfortable in our church sometimes. I worry about that, you know? Um, so we're really on the other side of the spectrum. So it, it's hard. The homogeneity helps for us. But I think, you know, you just always always push. We have respect for people. Everybody has the image of God in them, and we treat people well, and we don't try to brand them one way or the other. Yeah, you know, you talked about encouraging conversation and, and opportunities for feedback, interaction. Um, uh, about a year ago, um, I picked up on something that I never realized. Um, my daughter was in the room with, uh, my teenage daughter, 16, was in the room watching TV with us. And all of a sudden she picks up her phone and she stops type, typing. And the, what she was reacting to was a hashtag on the screen. And she was communicating while the show was going on about what she got from that particular scene of the show or whatever. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she told me, she says, well, I'm just, I just watched that and said hashtag and I'm, I'm responding to it. And, and, I, and at my oldest daughter is in college and they do that during chapel. They have a, a chapel thing where where the thing is going on. They're 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 communicating whether they like the speaker or not, or whether he said something really cool, or I really want to go on this mission trip, or and I'm thinking this is all happening while presentation is going on, and I'm wondering if maybe we're we're missing that connection in our sermons where we could just have on the PowerPoint hashtag Blood of Christ, or you know something like with, where there could be this interaction, you know while while. That, that they can read each other's comments and be able to interact with them with, in, a, in a social media type of way. All right, I saw one more question, lightning round. I'll try to get it quick. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about programs and kind of making people feel like there's a place for them. How do you transition that into, you know, what the church is all about, which is crucifying ourselves and taking ourselves out of the picture and living, having Christ live through us? I mean, that seems like a hard transition because we're, we're kind of saying, like, here's, we want you to feel really welcome, and the church is going to be about you, and yep. then we get them in there and say, okay, now give up yourself, which is what we yeah. as Christians are supposed to do. So how do you make that transition? Yeah, so I think it's just really hard. I think it's a balance. Um, I would look at, like, say, Romans. Romans is really interesting to me. It's a whole book about how Jews and Gentiles should get along. But then in the last chapter, he explicitly says, to the church of the Gentiles, blah, 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 and to the Jewish churches. And we get the sense that there was Jewish churches and there was Gentile churches. And they didn't always meet together. They better met the needs of the individual people, but they needed to interact well together. I don't think it's a terrible thing for your church to do well with some populations other than, better than others. I think what you've got to do is kind of figure out what you feel like God's calling you to, Make sure that you're open to people who aren't like you, and then plant lots of churches that look different than you so you can all be partners together. Um, I don't know, does that help at all? I mean, I go to a church with 70 people, so uh, we don't have a lot of programs. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just had a comment to that. Something somebody said years ago really helped me. You know, we all start off as you know, all of self and none of God. That's how we all start. And so we need to expect that from anybody. You know, that we're reaching out to 
and then over and because if we're being open and honest and transparent, we're talking about how we're dying, we are dying to ourselves daily, and that that's a struggle. But then they'll see it and they'll know that that's what's what is expected. That's what God wants of us. So. Yeah. All right, thank you for being here. I'll be up here. Um, we're part of Kairos Church Planting. If you guys have never met Stan, he is right here. Stan's part of the Kairos team. Uh, we believe in church planting churches, so we'd love for you to talk to them. Thanks, Kayla. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.